you don't know me, my name is Chapo and I am the pastor of Central Coast Community Church and I am so glad that you are all here today to celebrate Christmas, the coming of Jesus into this world. So you might have seen that the theme for today's Christmas program is the Christmas Dilemma. And you might be wondering, well, where is the dilemma in the Christmas story? Where is the problem? The Christmas story is the greatest story ever told. The story of God making a home amongst us and transforming us, fulfilling promises. Where is the dilemma in that story? Well, in the middle of the Christmas story is a whole bunch of real people who are faced with decisions about what their lives were going to look like now that God had come and said, I am making you part of my story. Now that they have seen Jesus, they are faced with the decision, well, who am I now? What is my life like now that God has made his way into my life? What does my life look like now? Who am I going to be? What's things going to look like? You think about Mary. Man, what an event to happen to a young girl. You think about Joseph, who Tim so wonderfully portrayed. You've got to remember, at this time, there had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. They were not expecting these large, spiritual, supernatural things to happen on a regular basis, and all of a sudden, an angel appears and says, it's okay. It's your, your fiancé. She's pregnant with God's son. Just chill. It's going to be fine. As if it's normal. As if it's okay. And he has to just come along with it and drastically alter his life. You've got these humble, peasant, low-class shepherds who get visited by an angel, get given this amazing story who no one's going to believe. No one's going to believe these, these shepherds that they were visited by angels. And then, of course, you've got these pagan wise men, and we're going to focus more on them in a little bit. The dilemma is that the God of heaven makes himself a part of our story. And then we are faced with the idea of, well, what now? Who am I now? What do I do now? How is my life different? Because Jesus has made himself a part of it. The dilemma is something that they face, but the dilemma is something that we face and that people will continue to face as long as Jesus' love keeps on extending over people and they find him. I want to tell you a quick story. About 15 years ago, not long after I'd first become a Christian, I got asked to go on a mission trip up into the highlands of Papua New Guinea. Some of you might have heard this story before. And I, I wasn't the one who was doing any of the preaching. I wasn't, I'd never preached it. I didn't think I would ever preach in my life. I was just a kid. But I got asked to go, and my job was to operate the sound equipment when we were doing these evangelistic programs up in Mount Hagen. And we set up on a football field. And on the first day, when the first meeting was supposed to happen it started pouring down rain. So all of the team gathered and we prayed, God, can you please stop the rain so that the people can come out and hear the message? And just in time for the program to start, the rain stopped. And as soon as the program was finished, guess what happened? Rain started again. And this happened almost every single day. And it was this amazing experience. We were just like, we are praying things are happening. About 10,000 people were coming out every single night and cramming onto this football field to hear the gospel preached. And it was fantastic. But one night, it started raining. And we did what we normally did. We gathered together and we prayed, God, stop the rain so we can go ahead with this program. And guess what happened? The rain didn't stop. The rain just kept bucketing down. And, and all night it rained. And it was amazing. About 2,000 people still came and sat in the sloshy mud and listened to the message. But we felt just empty at the end of it. What happened? Every other night we've prayed and the rain has stopped, but tonight we prayed and nothing happened. Well, 
couple of days later, we found out that there was a, a group of people in town who weren't happy with how many people were coming to our meetings. They were feeling a little bit threatened by the, just the enormity of the crowd that was coming. So they paid the rascals. Now, the rascals are like the local thugs up there. They paid the rascals to come to our program with their machetes and just mess up all our equipment and stuff up our gear and, and ruin our stage and the sound equipment so that we couldn't keep on preaching the gospel each night. But that night that they were going to come, it poured down raining. So they thought, oh, well, we can't go out in the rain. No one's going to be there. Let's just forget about it. And we were like praising God like God had our back. He stopped the rascals from coming. And that gave us all this faith. And we carried through to the end of that month. And then we came back to Australia thinking that nothing more had come. A few months later, we got a phone call from one of the pastors up in Papua New Guinea. And he said, oh, I'm just about to baptize a few young guys. You might want to hear the story. I'm like, yeah, tell us. Well, you know those rascals who came to mess with all your equipment? Well, a few nights later, they came back to have another go. And as they were laying down in the grass, waiting for the right moment to come out and attack, they heard the preaching. And as they heard the preaching, they were confronted by Jesus, and they realized that they couldn't go ahead with what they were going to do anymore. They came and started talking to the pastors and they said they wanted to get baptised and now they're seven-day Adventist Christians over in Papua New Guinea. How cool is that? Like, but it's, it's, it seems like it's a fake story, but I promise you it's not. Like, it's a real one that happened to me and our group. And it's just that idea that when you are confronted with God, just like these people were, you have to start making different decisions. You have to say, well, who am I now that God has become a part of my life? Who am I now in light of that? Now, I told you a few weeks ago that I love Christmas. I enjoy it. But I know that there's the bar humbug people in this room who don't love Christmas. And I can understand why. It is a mental time of year. Who's been to Tugra lately? Yeah, it's a, it's a bad time. Like, it is rough. People are parking in places that you're not supposed to park. No one is happy. Everyone's sweaty. So Christmas has this chaos all around it. Add to that a heat wave. Add to that a national like fire disaster. Like, this is a crazy time of year. Who here is in charge of cooking Christmas dinner this year? Anyone? Anyone here that got that job, that Christmas dinner is my job? Pete, yeah, good on you, mate. Look, usually, in, when it's my family's turn to do Christmas, I'm the cook, Right? Thankfully, this year we're having Christmas with Beth and his family and someone else can deal with it. But when it's my family, I'm the one who has to cook. So I spend days sort of strategizing, well, how am I going to do this? Okay, so I can cook this, this and this two days before and that can go in the fridge and this can go in the freezer. But this has to be cooked on the morning. So I have to put this in. I have to be up at six to get that on in time to get it out of the oven and allow time. So I've got to have it all planned out. Does anyone else do that? Yeah, Pete. Good on you, Pete. Man who cooks, eh? pretty good. But imagine if there was an easier way. Imagine if there was an easier way to do Christmas dinner. Well, guess what? There is. And it's called the Christmas dinner. A three-course Christmas dinner in a tin. This is a real product made by a company in the UK called, called Game, and I'll tell you the story behind that in a minute. Do you want to know what's in the Christmas dinner? Let's have a look. First course is scrambled egg and bacon and two mince pies. That's course number one. Below that, you've got turkey and potatoes, gravy, bread sauce. I don't know what that is. Um, do you know what it is, Ron? Yeah, you might know. Anyway, we'll talk about it later. Um, cranberry sauce, Brussels sprouts with stuffing or broccoli with stuffing, roast carrots and parsnips, and then below that, you've got the third course of chocolate pudding. Now, this is a real product. It's designed for gamers who don't want the distraction of having to get up from their gaming chair to have a Christmas dinner, they can stay at their chair and continue to game and have a whole Christmas meal. Now, 
unfortunately, this is not a joke. This is a real product, and there's been such a high demand for it that they've now introduced a vegetarian option and even a vegan option of the Christmas tinner. There you go, LHF, get onto it. Australian Lords of the Christmas Tinner, this is real. Who would be interested in taking the easy option? <laughs> okay, there's a couple. Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry guys. Tony, you're, you're, you make great food. <laughs> I think it looks disgusting. But look, I'm not in for that. I would put the effort in to make Christmas special. There's a group of people that that we're going to look at, and it's the wise men, and they didn't take the easy option by a long shot. They did not take the easy option when it came to Christmas, and we're going to look at their story. Now, we're going to go into the Bible. If you haven't brought a Bible with you and you would like to read along in the Bible, I'm going to get you to put your hand up nice and high in the air, and someone would deliver a Bible straight to you. So keep your hand up nice and high. Try not to get the pages full of Zupa Dupa. But hands up in the air, and a Bible will come to you. And we're going to look at the story of the wise men. We're going to look at the decisions that they had to make. Now, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go through the 12 verses in Matthew chapter 2 that looks at their story. And after we've gone through it, then I'm going to flip it a little bit and explain to you a bit more about what was really happening in that event. So when you get your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 2, which is on page 659, if you have one of our Bibles. And we're going to start in verse 1. Matthew 2, I've got to find it first, hang on, Matthew 2, and verse 1. And it starts here, so verse 1 and 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So it says here, Magi, What's the other term we normally use for these guys? The wise men. Okay, it's the same term. I'm going to come back to those guys a bit later and talk more about who they really were. But just right now, I just want to make sure everyone's clear is that these guys were not Jewish men. They were Gentile men from a pagan land and they had seen a star and it had taken them into Jewish territory as they were following that star looking for this apparent baby king that they had somehow been told about. Now, we're going on to verse 3. Verse 3 says, When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief, all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So here we get introduced to King Herod. It's believed that he looks something like this. Um, King Herod. <laughs> King Herod at this time is the political leader of the Jewish nation. He had sucked up so much to the Roman authorities that they had allowed him, they had permitted him to become like the ruler of his own people, but he knew really well, he was just a puppet king, and he knew really well that that throne that he sat on was not his rightfully. He was not a descendant of David, he was not even a full-blood Jew, and he is starting to get the idea that, well, maybe this baby that they're looking for could be the Messiah, and he knows that if this is the Messiah, then his time on the throne is about to get cut short. So he's starting to freak out. Let's carry on. 
in verse 8. In verse 8 it says, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time he had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. Now it says that Herod went to them secretly. He went to them secretly because even amongst the Jewish people, what he was doing was utterly shameful. He was going to these pagan people and trying to convince them to lead him to a baby that he can kill. Not any baby, but the baby who was the fulfillment of the promise they'd been waiting for for thousands of years. What he was doing was shameful, so he went secretly. And the wise men probably totally agreed to come back. They would have had no problem coming back to Herod and saying, this is where we found him. They had no idea what was going on. They were just like, hey, dude, we, just, we saw a star. So it seemed like a great idea. We started following it, looking for this king. If you want to worship him, sure, you can come and worship him too. Good times ahead. Don't worry. So come down with me to verse 9. Verse 9 says, After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When the star... When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So the star comes back up, it reappears. The star they originally saw, let's get rid of Herod. The star they originally saw came again and it stopped on the house and it says when it stopped, what was the emotion that they experienced? What was it? It wasn't just joy, it was overjoy. And it's a really strong Greek term about being exceedingly happy. The idea is here is they, they are deeply expressing their joy that whatever is on the other side of that wall, whatever we're about to walk into is going to be amazing. It's going to be significant. Remember, this was a time when it was not considered dignified to express emotion in front of other people. And these guys here, they're overjoyed because they have made it. If you are about to meet Jesus, you should be full of joy. Your spiritual experience should bring joy. If your religion is not full of joy, then maybe God is not in it. There should be joy in our worship. There should be joy in our time with God. There should be joy because we know that God loves us. There needs to be joy because where there is God, there is joy. And these men, not knowing what they're about to step into, are overjoyed. Let's read on in the text, verse 11. It says, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is awesome. It says that they saw this baby and they bowed down and they worshipped him. The specific word used is that just the worship that you give a God. They fell on their face and they started worshipping a baby. The crazy thing is that this group of pagan men with no idea of the coming Messiah, with no understanding of the prophecies, with none of that, were face to face with who could only be God and they fell down and worshipped. It gives you an idea of how significant this moment was to them. And what's the next thing they did? They opened up their treasures and they gave them three things. First thing they gave was what? Gold. Now, gold was just the equivalent of giving them a big wad of cash. It was like a briefcase full of $100 bills. It was like, here's the first gift, cash. Then what's the next things they give? Franken, not Frankenstein, frankincense and myrrh. Now these were both fragrances like incenses and oils. They had spiritual significance, but these kind of fragrances were common gifts. It was a stinky time to live and you would often give gifts of fragrances just to make your life more pleasant. So this was normal, but 
they were worth a lot of money. They were incredibly expensive. All right. And finally, verse 12. Verse 12 says, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So they had a dream. In their dream, God said, Don't go back to Herod. So they said, Well, let's go home another way. Sounds, it's a pretty straightforward story, right? Pretty just run-of-the-mill kind of like, dude, show up, worship Jesus, have a dream, go home a different way. Not much to it. What do you reckon? Come on. What do you think? Come on, give me something back. Yeah, not, yeah? You reckon? No. All right, let's start. How many wise men were there? Oh, hang on, hang on. How many wise men? Oh, I'm getting all sorts of answers over here. You know, the common perception is there was three wise men. The Bible never says anywhere that there were three wise men. The Bible says there was three gifts, so we assume that they all carried one each and came to Jesus. Realistically, it was probably all in the one secure cabinet, right? And when you look into the history, when these kind of men traveled, they usually traveled in groups of 12. So there was most likely 12 wise men, and not just 12 wise men, but their servants and their security, their whole entourage, their camels. This was a large group of people. It wasn't just three random dudes following a star, just tracking through the desert. This was a large group of people. Now, the second thing is, we call them wise men, but what's the word the Bible used? Magi. What does the word magi sound like? Magic. It's the word from which we get our word magic from. The word literally means a magician. So these were most likely Arabic wise men, Arabic magi, judging by the gifts that they brought. Um, and their role was, they were called divination. The idea is that by supernatural means, they receive knowledge about the future or about secret things. And these magi, their specific way of understanding these supernatural things was through the stars. These magi were professional ancient astrologers. So try to wrap your head around that idea. These guys believed that God spoke to them through the stars. So what does the God of heaven use to tell them to go and look for Jesus? A star. Like, that's really, really cool. Um, now, if, here's the catch, though. Um, if you know anything about the Old Testament, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that the Bible is really clear that there is only one creator God and that we don't worship stars. We certainly don't expect them to tell us things, right? And, and the Bible is clear the fact that the only way we should be gaining supernatural information is from God himself, not from these other means. The Bible is clear to stay away from sorcerers and fortune tellers. So with that in mind, wrap your head around this story. A group, a large group of pagan fortune-telling magicians show up to the very Jewish Mary and Joseph after she's just given birth, come into the home and say, we want to worship your son. Just get your head around that. The equivalent for us would be if we were at band practice last night and a group of occultists walk in the door, all with their stuff that they use in black clothes and said, hey, look, the Holy Spirit spoke to us today and said we were supposed to worship God with you tomorrow. Can we, can we come and pray and sing? That would be the equivalent of what takes place here. Like, just wrap your brain around what is going on in this story. Um, I think this is incredibly significant. These wise men, these fortune-telling pagan magicians were the first human beings to bow down and worship the incarnate God. What is this telling us? What is, what is heaven trying to tell us through that? It's telling us that Jesus is for everybody. It's 
telling us that there is no one that cannot be reached by God. It's saying that there is no one that we write off. There is no one that is too far away. There is no one that cannot be included into God's family. There is no one that we should say no for them before we've asked the question. Do you understand that? Pagan magicians were the first to come and worship the God of heaven in human flesh. That is awesome. And there's a message in that for us. Embrace everybody. Pray for everybody. Don't say no for anyone. You don't know who God is trying to reach. If he can use them, he can reach anybody. So the next thing that happens is you've got King Herod, who's the king of the Jews, who was very familiar with the prophecies and already started to suspect that this baby was the Messiah. And instead of what you would want him to do, which is embrace him and celebrate him and tell everyone about the fact that, hey, as your king, I'm proud to announce that the promise is being fulfilled, what does he do instead? He tries to kill it. He tries to stop it to protect himself. So you've got this amazing contrast between these loyal pagan magicians and this Jewish leader they try to worship him and protect him. The Jewish leader wants him gone. So there's this amazing contrast there. Here's the next thing. The wise men bring gifts and they are very expensive gifts. Now, what's the next thing that happens in the story? So after the wise men come, where do Jesus and, uh, and Joseph and Mary have to go to? Do you remember? They have to flee to Egypt. Okay? They get told again in a dream, you need to go to Egypt because Herod's trying to kill you. What was Joseph's job? Who knows? What? Well, yeah, a carpenter is what we say. He was actually a stonemason. The Greek word is tectone, which means someone who builds houses out of stone. But because we in the modern world build houses out of wood, we sort of associate it with a carpenter. It's the same idea. He built homes, but he did it out of stone. Um, but here's the idea. If you are on the run from an angry king and his soldiers, how many houses can you build? How many? You're in a foreign land, you probably don't speak the language. How many houses do you get to build? Not 50 and 8. None. Okay? So if he can't build houses, how does he get money to support his family? He just got a wad of cash and this expensive stuff. And most scholars say that this is the only way he could have supported his family to protect them through the two years that they were on the run from Herod before Herod died. This is crazy. God provided for this family through those pagan magicians, brought them what they needed so that they could carry on and Jesus could grow in to be the man who would save the world. Another remarkable thing. And here's the next thing is, so the wise men get this dream. And because of the dream, they ignore Herod's orders and they return home in secret. This was not as easy as it seems. I'm going to read this. This is from Michael J. Wilkins. He's a New Testament scholar. He said that Herod's long arm of military security covered most of even these circuitous, whatever that word is, routes. I think it means like back roads and stuff. Um, so the Magi and entourage must have traveled swiftly and secretly as possible. Their sacrifice and endurance is a profound testimony to the impact of having seen and worshipped the infant Jesus, the true king of the Jews and the hope of the Gentile seekers. Their going another way home was just not choosing a different road. They're going another way home meant hardship. It meant hiding. It meant, and this is not three people, this is a group of people. They had encountered Jesus and they said, we can't be the same people anymore. We can't just carry on as normal. We've got to make decisions. This is going to impact us. And they went another way home. And likely, most likely, they became followers of Jesus as well. Because how could you have that experience before the newborn baby? 
and not be permanently changed. Now, there's someone else that we like to imagine being at this event of Jesus' birth. And it's a little boy who played the drums. There's an old Christmas song. Do you know the song I'm talking about? And now, unfortunately, it's fiction. So sorry to burst your bubble out there if you thought there was really this kid like playing the drums. The little drum boy is not in the Bible, okay? It's a fictitious story that has been made up, but it's a really cool story. It's got a great idea behind it. It's a story of this little boy who has nothing to bring to God, okay? He gets asked to come along, so he plays the drums instead. So the idea is really cool, but the lyrics are actually really weird, okay? So I'm going to just have a look at the lyrics for a while. So the first it says, Come they told me. What does it say? Yeah. A newborn king to see. Come on. Our finest gifts we bring to lay before the king. So to honor him when we come. So the idea is that these wise men, as they are going to Jesus, they've followed the star, they're going to Jesus. The idea in this fictitious song is that they find this boy on their way and they're like, hey, you should come with us. You should come with us and see Jesus as well. And he comes along with them. Now, nothing too bad yet, except for the fact that where is this kid's parents and why is he going off with strange men? You know, but it was a different time in which it was written. But Nothing too bizarre yet, but then we get into the next part of the song. And here we go. Little baby, I'm a poor boy too. I have no gift to bring. That's fit to give our king. Shall I play for you? And what did Mary do? Mary nodded. In no possible scenario... Does a woman who has just given birth, holding her baby child, welcome a kid coming and playing the drums for them? There is no way that that is going to happen. Could you imagine after our service today, we all go to Wyong Hospital to the maternity ward and say, hey, we're here because it's Christmas. We just want to play drums for the babies. What do you think? No. It's not okay. So the song goes on, and we'll leave the parumpa pums out for now. It says, The ox and lamb kept time. I played my drum for him. I played my best for him. Then he smiled at me, me and my drum. So I don't quite get the ox and lamb bit, um, but I get the bit about he did his best, which is cool. Then he smiled at me. Babies can't smile unless they've got gas. So, but the idea is great that he's like, yeah, go for it. I'm loving this. Um, and, you know, the song kind of ends there. Alexandra Petrie, she's a columnist for the Washington Post. She wrote this whole article on the fact that she thinks A Little Drummer Boy is the worst Christmas song ever. And this is what she says. She says, so he showed up at the party without a gift. Fine, totally fine. And he apologised, also fine. And he's right, he has nothing to give the baby that will be good. And this is where things take a turn. And then she goes on to say, I'm at the age where you have, and then she crosses it out and says, get to attend lots of baby showers. So I have my finger on the pulse of what makes an appropriate gift for a baby. Here is a quick list that I came up with just now, just off the top of my head. Woolen socks, cute little baby bib that says, bless this mess. A onesie, swaddling clothes, and then myrrh, frankincense, and gold, right? That's her list of acceptable gifts. Here's a quick list of things that are not appropriate to give babies. Drum music. <laughs> she goes on to say, 
This isn't Rocco, rocket neurosurgery. If you showed up at any, other, at any other party whose theme was give gifts to a baby and the gift that you brought was loud noises, everyone would not nod benignly. They would say, please leave. And what were you thinking? And that's not an appropriate gift at all, not even a little bit. Have you ever met a baby before? And then she wraps up this article quite brutally by saying this. Little Drummer Boy is a song in which a jerk tells you a story about a time he played a sick drum solo in a context in which it was totally inappropriate. <laughs> I'm going to get the band to come up the front now as I start to wrap things up. So come up. So that's one way. That's one way that you can look at this song, okay? And the lyrics lend themselves to that kind of way of looking at it. But that's not the reason by which it was written at all. The reason behind the song and the actual meaning of the song is actually really, really great. The first idea is that the Magi, as they're traveling to meet Jesus, they're looking around and the person that they see there to bring, it turns out to be a kid with arms. The idea is as you are going to see Jesus, who are you bringing with you? Who are you looking around for saying, you should come with us. We are going to see the new king. Come along. That is an excellent idea. That is something worth singing about. The next thing is the kid says that I'm totally undone before you, Jesus. I have nothing that is any good to give a king. And he's right. Just like we are. We have nothing that is worth giving a king. We, God says to us, I've done everything. I've done everything. I've paid every price. That You're just completely undone before me. You have nothing good to bring. And that's the same as us. We have nothing that can earn it. We just come and say, hey, God, I've got nothing, but take me anyway. And then finally, he goes, well, guess what? I've got my drum. And I used to play my drum for other reasons. I used to play my drum in other places. But now that I've met the king, I'm going to play my drum for the king. I've got a drum. I'm going to play it. And then the, what is kind of the strangest bit, but also the coolest bit, it says, and then he smiled at me. Don't think about a creepy baby who's giving a thumbs up to a guy doing a drum solo. Think about the God of heaven who smiles at you and says, thank you for giving me what you had. Thank you for bringing someone with you when you come to meet me. Thank you for looking around and seeing what you can bring and what you can do and take it. We're going to sing this song now. Even though I just spent all that time writing it off, we're going to sing it. But what I want you to do is as we sing these words, think about those ideas. They said, come along with us. Well, who are you bringing? When he says, I played my best for him, what are you playing? You used to play for someone else, but now you play for Jesus. What is the song that you are playing on your drum? Think about that as we sing this song.